Let the games begin. By taking some time out of our daily lives to sit down and have a little chat. Chit-chat. Yeah, chit-chat, thank you. Conversation must be stimulating. There's still, you need a set of aesthetic guidelines to put it in social perspective, I think. Maybe what we need here is a fresh perspective. Fresh points of view. Stimulating conversation. Stop. I thought it would put things in perspective for you. Let's begin. All right! Episode 10. <laughs> Welcome back to the podcast. A lot of firsts. This is the first one we're doing all in person. Um, second one with me and Peter, but first one with all three three of us, with the guests. Uh, it's also an important guest. It's my dad, Dimitri. Um, and yeah, just a lot of, I think, yeah, a lot of big updates today. So, and a lot of fun stuff, I think, for us to talk, talk about. Um, been looking forward to doing this one for a while. Uh, for a number of reasons, but um, just a little bit about my dad. He's a real estate investor. He was a professional athlete and also a professional, I guess, soccer businessman, coach, president. <laughs> a lot of different things. A renaissance man. I a renaissance man, yeah. yeah. And Let's uh, not overstate <laughs> the importance. And Well, yeah, it's weird also giving you an intro because, um, you know, I just think of you as, as pops. But um, welcome to the podcast. Thank you excited? You. Yeah, and congrats on your new acquisition of your <laughs> first personal residence. You're a proud owner of two bedroom, two bath, penthouse looking place <laughs> in San Diego. I San wish Diego's I had, newest resident. I had one like that when I was thirty. That would have been great. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, no, it's it's fun. It doesn't feel I don't feel like it's fully hit me yet, but you know, I'm I'm definitely in a good mood. Just been a it's been a fun week having Peter here. It's been you know, just fun kind of all just hanging out. He'll hit you when you wake up when I go, Where am I? <laughs> Where <And laughs> you see lights. Yeah. Well I was I was talking to Peter about that. I was like, it's gonna be weird the first night um waking up there because it's it's just gonna be like a different place. But you know, slowly slowly making it into a home. I have a I have a set of aesthetic guidelines <laughs> already in mind. But um should be fun. Yeah, it's um yeah, first I had a goal of, of real investing in some kind of real estate before 30 so thanks you know wouldn't have happened without you um yeah i guess uh peter had a good question yeah i was wondering if uh you could maybe talk about the feelings you had when you bought your first residential place maybe stop stop renting or you know the transition from from that to a place you owned and, and what that was like for you yeah so the first one was like a six unit building in Berkeley and um, I did move in eventually but um, at first I was still renting and I had this like an income property but within like six months I moved in and then uh, and then maybe six months to a year later your mother moved in so uh, <laughs> so anyways we were still dating then but uh, the feeling was great I I worked really hard trying to escape the system. I didn't want to work. I didn't want to uh, join the workforce. I was still, it was so it was 86. I was still in college. I had another year or two left. So and you were a sophomore? No, it, I was like fourth year junior. Okay. <laughs> Wait, so how old were you? You said 24? Uh, so it was 86. Yeah, it would be about 23 or so. Pretty, yeah. pretty yeah. daring to make that type of move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had to pull on a lot of strings, borrow a bunch of money from everyone, from anybody I could. So with me, it was zero down, kind of deal. But uh, it's a good cash on cash return right there. Yeah, infinite, <laughs> infinite. <laughs> but you know, I was also scholarship athlete, and I was getting everything paid. I was getting stipend. I borrowed student loans to the hilt, even though I was already, you know full scholarship athlete so pretty clever it's just money 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 free money interest zero interest so i kind of blended rate was like i don't know maybe six percent hmm. um and uh yeah so and and then my real house the first house was a construction house so i bought the lot and i hired a contractor engineer and built it that was probably like th two three years after so um, it's quite a big bite to take out for first house. Like you have to yeah. learn a lot about construction and 
yeah, I had to learn fast to had to learn fast how to sugarcoat the bankers and 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 kind of leverage myself into deals that I probably shouldn't have been able to buy. This is when they didn't verify your uh, income tax returns <laughs> and uh, before you need to verify source of deposit or down payment. Um, what, do they, what do they add that rule? Uh, probably after the last meltdown. Uh, <laughs> and this is when you could still talk to appraisers. And hmm. uh, I remember when I finished the first house, I actually went ahead and refinanced it, pulled out quarter million dollars and put it into apartment building. And uh, I completely guided the appraiser because first one arrived and it was like, no, it's worse whatever you paid for it, land plus construction cost. I said, are you crazy? It's worth at least quarter million more. He says, no. I said, well, you fired. <laughs> Don't send anything to anyone. And then when I got new appraiser and I just told him, I, you know, I think it's worth 600,000. And and it cost me only 300 hmm. and he said okay and then i pulled out 500,000 new loan so i paid off construction loan 300 got 200 225,000 hmm. uh, and that kind of started my real estate career i said i could do it all day long i could just wheel and deal and the cash flow from apartments paid for the construction and i pulled out money out of construction or sell it eventually i sold that house and then move on to the next deal but what was the i guess the feeling of having your you know your first place and everything with like yeah. do you you know that all, all of those details i think are fascinating i, I don't know if I, I recently also just got a home and it, it i've been moving for about 10 years before that and to finally be settled was i wasn't settled shame. then i think i'm probably was never settled until maybe now I'm feeling like catching up with me, but I always was transient and kind of, um, I didn't mind moving. I lived in Europe for a while. And uh, if I tried to count how many times we, I moved uh, between, you know, probably like four or five times in Spain and then another, maybe more than a dozen times post-college and then couldn't even count before college and you know so you know gypsying kind of around but um but to answer your question the i remember like especially when i moved finally in and got the green tag in occupancy permit i moved into that house on the keith avenue 1161 keith avenue and there was quite like disbelief like you wake up in the morning san francisco view in front of you like pinch yourself like you know <laughs> you did it like um you know but you know those were the days when i thought if i have a million bucks in equity in real estate <laughs> i'll have it made because i could probably cash for one hundred fifty thousand dollars on it a year you know I saying, how much would that be today adjusted for inflation roughly no nah, not that much more probably mm -hmm. two hundred thousand maybe Hmm. But, um, yeah, and, you know, it just kept, that's all, a, kept, all yeah. kept rolling, right? Yeah. 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 It's, um, it's interesting, right? Cause I think it sounds like just if I had to summarize kind of what I, how I think about your investment style, it's just taking smart risks and like big risks, but smart risks. Um, I don't know. I just like, what's, how, what do you think set? that initial or those initial few investments apart from someone who has no idea what they're doing, right? Like, cause you gotta take that first step. You gotta have kind of trust in your own process and your own kind of um, research and ability to kind of learn versus, you know, someone who just says, oh yeah, I'm gonna make all this money and this goes in just unprepared and then ends up losing also, it all, ends up in debt or you know, whatever. Also everything you talked about, I think was really creative, like taking a bunch of different pieces that most people wanted to put together and making it all work to your advantage. Definitely take shrewd immigrant kind of mind to game the system. <laughs> but to Sergey respond like the um, like the Martian, you know, when he says Wahlberg says you just have to math it out. 
So I never saw, thought the opportunities I was taking advantage of, I don't even want to call them risk. They were just opportunities to me. I didn't see risk. Like people were like looking and go, well, what if this, what if that? And I go, well, you'll figure it out. Yeah, yeah exactly. You, you cannot overthink it, but like into the future too far. But if uh, fundamentals make sense, in the sense of like, you know, you, you know what your mortgage is because you signed the documents, you know what your expenses more or less. So you want to make sure that the biggest risk for me then was keep the units occupied. And that's why I settled in Berkeley when everybody said that Berkeley was the worst place in the United States to invest because it had rent control. I think about two places in US had Santa Monica and Berkeley. They both were illegal according to, you know, constitution because they weren't given minimal increases they've both been sued so but i like the fact that it was you know 100 percent demand there was no vacancies anywhere in berkeley people will pay finder's fee so i go okay so i eliminate the vacancy uh they give you you know two three percent increase that's good enough uh because they actually didn't give any percentages they give like 25 dollars so if your unit is two thousand dollars you get $25. If it's $200, you still get $25. So one get 10% increase, the other one get, you know, sure. yeah, zero, one percent. So, um, but to me, my units were $600. I go, you yeah. know, you give me 25 bucks a month, so I got six units, extra 150 bucks, you know, could buy a used car for that money. Yeah. Uh, so, but uh, what drove me into real estate is necessity. You know, they say necessity is mother of invention invention father of progress hmm. i wanted to make olympics and i was still training really hard and i realized that kind of truth about myself that i i uh, i didn't really have anything to offer to the world in a <laughs> sense like like what would i work as you know i um and i wanted to train uh, and have an office job for eight hours i realized would pretty much end that career I also wanted to travel so at first it was necessity was i needed time to train twice a day and by the time i finished college i already had i think maybe close to 100 units uh, 63 wow. in one complex and well in 1990 it was just right after college right before we got married 63 units and then fire happened and i added another 48 units in san francisco so i had 100 units and to me it was like okay i could now live and train effectively i did i i went to 92 96 olympic trials and what is that what is what was that like did you have a team around you where which country were you going for i, I don't know anything about that process yeah no so i was trying out for us uh in 91 i went to israel there was a slight possibility of competing for israel which basically would be like a walk-on Olympic team. But there's so much politics and uh, Israeli politics and all that. So I just said, no, their trials were about the same time as US. So I just went for US trials. Hmm. Uh, and you know, US has probably one of the best Olympic teams in the world in track and field. And uh, so the competition from itself was like Olympic Intense. games to me. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Uh, well, that's, you know, sometimes in those games, you'll have one, two, and three all go to the same country, you know, in a particular mm -hmm. yeah. sport. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Atlanta Olympic was 96, and we competed in the Olympic Stadium. So uh, my buddy, still buddy of mine, uh, Kenny Harrison, won that game. He was a year younger. Um, he had four tries, and he was second in the nation high school i was second in the nation in high school he just went further um i think you know there's some part of it is athleticism the other part is you know i was married and had two kids by 96 olympics some of these guys in fact kenny never had kids never settled and so it's a level of dedication i'm just glad i was smart enough to say hey i need some backup plan because um you know, track might not work out. And perhaps 
you know, when you provide a safety net, that's why it doesn't work out. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I, I chose wisely. I don't think um, kind of got the best of both worlds because I got to experience very, very high level of competition, competition and then yet do not completely abandon the uh, reality of life that you know, if you want to have kids, you need to provide and money have to come from somewhere. So I, I figured that part. And uh, my claim to fame was, I guess, my high school days, couple old Pac tens, and then, and then world championship at forty eight, masters championship. I, I won <laughs> finally, so I could say I didn't I live. The sport was out winning the world championship, and <laughs> yeah. and the and cool thing is, was I think at forty, maybe it was forty six or forty seven. At forty seven, I think I jumped. Uh, exactly the same what I jumped when I was 17. Whoa. And I was a down year because... At what was the sport? A triple jump. Okay. I, I jumped 45.6 and I think at 17 my best was 46.6. So, you know, very small difference. Um, at, four, at 18, my senior year, I jumped 49.9, which was... But it's just 47 to 17. I kind of surprised myself. Um, Nico was jumping around that same distance as a senior uh, in in high school. Okay. So, yeah, um, muscle memory, I guess. Lasts yeah. a while. Yeah, you were still in good shape, though. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a big part of it too. The difference was I was two hundred five pounds when I was jumping at forty seven, versus one hundred seventy five or one hundred seventy. <laughs> so I had extra thirty pounds on me. Yeah, that's oh. crazy. I, I doubt at that age I would was thirty pounds more I would have jumped anywhere close it oh, depends what the 30 pounds are made of yeah well um, that's yeah. dope yeah <laughs> just yeah it's a lot of weight to carry around crazy shot put run doing triple jump that would have said <laughs> basically <laughs> 200 pounds yeah. high school yeah hmm. let's talk a little bit about the soccer i think that'd be cool oh my least favorite subject favorite. yeah we can pass on that one we can pass well yeah we don't or, have to pass or... we could do uh Abbreviated, abbreviated well, we, version. I mean, we don't have to. It, not like a. It's life, another opportunity. Not, not that like a life story interview or anything. We're just talking. That's about, true. Yeah. It, what would you like? To talk it, about? It's a detour, not a life story, but it is kind of life detour. I, you know, I wanted to remain in sport. It's a short story of it. Kind of, um, I my career started in Ukraine, USSR when I'm playing soccer. It was pretty good. I was scoring a lot of goals, and then I got to join a track team. So in Russia, everything is very disciplined, very... Uh, organized. Yeah, organized, but it's also professionalized. Uh, so once you go into sport, they make sure that you finish, you stay in sport, they talk to your parents and so forth. Um, so once I went into um, track, I stayed with track pretty much through my life. I lost the contact in in US because soccer in US was pretty much non-existent in the late 70s. They tried to start a league, it collapsed. But anyways, didn't talk until I'm pretty much retired after 96 Olympics and somehow got into local soccer. And that, then I saw an opportunity. And opportunity was, hey, you know, in, in Spain or in Europe, you in general, you can get a team on the fifth level, fifth tier, which is like, very well and you could win every season and you could promote to a high level and basically you get into you know equivalent of NFL top tier and all you need to do is be able to pick the talent don't overpay and uh, and be able to find good coach and stuff build the team yeah Uh, so I was good in I was cash flowing, so I could kind of self-sponsor. So that's financial part of it. And then uh, at the end, after a couple of years, I realized, hey, I need to take over coaching as well. <laughs> and it's also will uh, streamline the process because there's no miscommunication. You know, coaches don't hire uh, the team. It's managers, presidents. So uh, it it worked 
but you know it required so much um, more knowledge and understanding of the uh, environment Spanish or European environment that I didn't have at the time so uh, eventually I had to sell and we moved back I there were a couple of reasons one also we wanted to one of the reasons was that we want kids to come back to US start school so it was a couple of years from the university so we, that was the time we thought we want to make sure he got US education also it got really uh, heavy on the family from the standpoint of traveling constant traveling constant uh, uh, conflict uh, Sometimes even, uh, you know, there were possibly not life-threatening, but situations where, you know, we lived in Cantabria, which is next to Basque country. Basque country was known for Basque terrorists. Uh, Basque terrorists are very nationalistic. And uh, they, they were always concerned that, you know, football attracts a lot of crazies. Sure. And uh, crazies sometimes could take it over too. So you got a foreigner running a club uh, and a lot of presidents have you know in Spain in general the people show up and with eggs sometimes to president's house never happened to us but it, it does happen quite often in different um, venues in Spain so uh, once I saw uh, interesting we did get to first division which is major leagues wow. uh, and uh, uh, and right around the same time, you know, I picked up club for, you know, $3 million, uh, majority interest. And a few years later, about when I was already an owner, uh, Liverpool sold for about $600 million. And interesting enough, the club that I took in the second division and promoted up played UEFA Cup finals against Liverpool uh, two years before I bought it in technical bankruptcy. And uh, the match was tied in regulation and the two team ties, I think 4-4 and Liverpool won on the overtime, golden goal. It was own goal on top of it, header. And this was the last time they did golden goal. Now they play just the regulation 15 plus 15 minutes. So we uh, we watched cause we watched those clips, right? And yeah. the, the other detail was there were two red cards against yeah against yeah. the Spanish team. So yeah. like oh, this, yeah. it, was a, it was a crazy game, very crazy. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I think a couple of guys who played on the team was still on the team when I took it over. Hmm. So, but the the whole system in Europe is very uh, different from US. It, there are no franchise, so there's no certainty. There's uh, no salary yeah. cap, no salary caps, no no equal distribution in television. Uh, we competed in the first division. I remember first year when we went up, we played against Barcelona, which is a top club in the country hmm. and in the world. Their budget was three hundred fifty million. Our budget was, you know, twelve million. Hmm. Uh, so you know, thirty times higher, and we tied zero zero at home. Mm-hmm. So money isn't everything. Uh, any given Sunday yeah any given Sunday sure uh, but you do need talent and sure. talent uh, you get talent with money sure. uh, in anything in any sport whether it's yachting uh, or football or basketball or anything you hmm. totally need source and so that couple quirks in Spanish league because other leagues now more modernized in the sense of revenue sharing and accountability to having the budgets because people overspend in Spain, not a problem. And then they go bankrupt and then those people can't come, other clubs that don't overspend can't compete. Hmm. So it's kind of sports of a little crazy, but anyway, so it was fun. I learned a lot, uh, but um, you know, would I do it again? No. <laughs> <laughs> you tried, uh, you tried uh, addressing some of those things, right? With the, like the balancing and revenue sharing and stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, 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 club, our club representative, Deportivo Les, he became eventually president of the league. Uh, I nominated him for the league, which is, you know, uh, managing body of first and second division in Spain. And, and now I think it's the same club now went from making 7 million 
a year in television revenue to 45 million. Hmm. And this 10 years later, so it's not inflation, it's just the distribution have changed. Hmm. Um, does it make uh, soccer more viable investment? No. Uh, <laughs> uh, mainly because, again, there's a lot of uh, discontrol there. Politics? No, it just, just, you know, in here we have salary caps, so we have budget caps, you, you got luxury tax, distribution, so forth. So the table is set much more evenly in mm. US in all professional sports. In Spain, it's still Wild West. It's like, and most clubs are not owned by majority holders. There's mm. like, I think four clubs that are owned by majority holders and um, in Spain. In Madrid and Barcelona don't have any uh, stockholders. It's uh, basically a private social club. Hmm. So, um, which collects most of the revenue from, siphon most of the revenue from Spanish soccer. So hmm. they always will be on top. Uh, and then every now and then they'll get you know, Cinderella story. Or Atletico Madrid's now there too. But most of the time it's, you know, who's going to win the league? Either Madrid or Barcelona, maybe Atletico Madrid. And, hmm. and they have won most of the leagues. And then the rest of the clubs, they call elevator clubs. They go up, they come down, will go up, go down. And uh, it, you know, if you enjoy sports and uh, there is a way to make money, but um, is it worth it? No. And if I would say one single thing that I have benefited from getting into soccer is that it required me at, at some point uh, through multiple or different forms of crisis, dig deep inside and try to figure it out. Like what is it, what worth doing in life and what's not worth doing in life. Um, because when I was in soccer, I was full in, there was nothing else, um, so regrettably. It just absorbs you completely. So that existential crisis kind of, I think, in very unpredictable way, led me to, uh, you know, reinvent myself in many, many ways. So I think that's a really good segue. I, it seems like the common theme that I'm picking up on is is competitiveness, is really just diving into something, you know, trying to become the best at it, and giving it your all. So, and you're saying, what is the purpose of, you know, if you like soccer, maybe that's a good thing. How do you decide what you're going to dive into and be competitive at and give your all. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure there is a free will anymore <laughs> because I think, uh, you know, it's a bunch of circumstances in life that uh, I have very little to do with, you know, like who are my parents, where I was born and so forth. And then what I was exposed to in sports from early age. And then the rest of it is just a bunch of synopsis and neurons in your head via Stress, but, hormone, and but, dopamine lead you to a certain way. It's just... Wouldn't you say you're pretty competitive at most things you do? Uh, yeah, and although I think the way I manifest my competitiveness is now different, right? It's mine over matter now. So to me, um, I would say I'm still competitive, but if you say, like, if you had to do one thing in, like, 100 percent like throw everything in no safety net just one thing you could do uh, that only affects you obviously not putting in family and everything else i would say what i want to compete in in kind of olympics it would be self-knowledge or understanding self i mean that's much more stimulating than uh you know having a billion dollars in the bank or or houses or wealth or, or winning any kind of game soccer game whether it's soccer or basketball game I I still love competing in those but largely those are like take the few more you know just mindless tasks uh, getting into in the flow of things like when I play soccer I like to compete but then I come home I, I don't even think about it it's, it's done 
if I have to give it up, I would give it up. If, another hand, if you say, no, keep soccer, you'll be competitive, but you know, give up the psychology part of who you are. I said, no, I'm not interested. Because uh, I, I'm, I, I find this a lot of dopamine in the process of learning new tricks and understanding how my brain works and now learning how to change the plasticity of the brain. That, that's exciting to me because I think that's where opportunities, real opportunities lie. It sounds like if you figure that out, you have a real chance at, you know, just sustained long-term peace and happiness. Whereas like some of the other activities, you know, winning a soccer match or even losing, they're, they're momentary and the, the moment passes and then, you know, life exists. Yeah, no, true. Except, uh, I don't, I'm not sure you get tranquility. I, tranquility, perhaps not the uh, right word, because I think human life in general, that's part of human condition, requires stress. Mm -hmm. So, uh, understanding thyself is not that easy. And it, it could be stressful, and it could be frustrating, and it could be uh, stressful just from realization. Yeah. Um, realizations of you know your own limitations or your own condition right you, you know if you there's certain things are not easy and I think I no longer shy away from stress I still don't because I think it's an important part of learning in fact we need stress we need fear uh, and we need dopamine and those other hormones that are secreted with stress and the play between the two yeah, and, but actually, physiologically, there's also a need for that because what happens during stress, you get adrenal hormones uh, secreted, and then um, that primes your neurons in your brain, synapses start firing, and this is how your body starts forming new passages in the brain. So all of that is um, important for learning and evolutionary it makes sense right you create stress you let's say there's a threat there's an animal you stressed you figured it out you defeat the animal you remember or escape you remember and and that forms learning passages right so we you know so uh but again my tranquility comes from understanding myself so if you stress or if you have certain degree of you know uh difficulties that you're overcoming um, in your expectation is set that my expectation is set that okay it's okay then it becomes okay right if your expectation is I want to have stress-free life but then you have stress-free life you get bored we create stress and it's and you say wait a second but I wanted stress-free life and and but you have stress and that gives you more stress so it's all loopy but um, yeah um, do you meditate or do you have any how stress do you, management yeah yeah well, how do you manage stress or how do you how do you do that self-reflection what's your approach yeah so uh, I I tried meditating in a sense like sitting there with empty mind that doesn't work for me uh, the way meditation I understand now for me like if you get into like in inside yourself inside your own head is I would be in some kind of stressful environment like hot sauna. Uh, I'll, I'll be listen, listening to some uh, deep, uh, insightful either uh, podcast or some kind of interview with some very smart people, whether they're from psychology or, or, or social science or social science and psychology, but um, or, or psychiatry or doctors, professors, scientists. I, I love doing those, you know, 30 to hour and a half long, uh, very engaging conversation with uh, people that do exactly what you guys are trying to do, get people to interview and express. So do you think it's the play between a stressful environment, you know, the stress is built, right, your body's under a little bit of stress and then dopamine from yeah. hearing someone and then maybe reaching that, that flow state, you know, where you're not conscious and you, you're kind of just letting it all happen and kind of percolate 
Yeah, well, so the, uh, the stress of sauna, the heat kind of, uh, I think, helps me prime. I'm very relaxed. I don't feel like I'm stressed, but it creates this kind of necessary condition, like, you know, heat supposedly also make you feel uh, uh, stressful, you know, extreme temperatures, cold, heat prolongs your life. I think there's probably some reasons for that physiologically, but I just get in that environment and I sweat and I, it's almost kind of like, um, what is it called when they go into those Indian tents? Trance or something? Yeah, or? trance, but that state of trance that I'm entering to in peyote. What the, the, when they do the peyote? Yeah, drug? peyote, yeah. Hmm. So it's not quite that. I kind of create uh, environment for myself as hmm. heat and whatever. And, and, uh, and usually it has to be in the morning because that's when my attention is highest and I could rationalize and get hmm. through. I cannot do this during the day. Um, so, um, um, and uh, it could be on any subject. So, it's actually Bezos said he liked to keep all his creative, difficult decisions to the morning. And then by the end of the day, he was spent and tired and, you know, wanted to leave everything else for the next morning. Again. Yeah. It, you ha almost have to. Yeah. It, yeah. I think there's a limit, but hour and a half, I understand plasticity and the creative moments because at that point you know I try to get a little rest in because you need to have rest kind of because during short sleeps maybe you absorb a lot more in your mind kind of process, process it need to form those passages um, yeah, we can just keep yeah, yeah good so we'll talk a little about that sure what is your, do you have any, uh, have you tried different stress self-reflection techniques? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I have, um, you know, the, the thing that really got me into it was Sai and David and that app, uh, David made. What's the name of it? It's a uh, Goenka timer. I'll link to it, but it's, it's really simple. I mean, it's just a timer and, uh, there's a social element where it shares your kind of meditation time. Or so the timer really just like kind of it, it sets a meditation time and then tracks it over a calendar and then you can share it with um you know different people who also have the app and signed up for it so it's um pretty straightforward i mean it's and it helps i mean just sitting there kind of in silence or with some music i have a flow playlist just really helps kind of you know it forces me to address the things that i've been avoiding in my mind <laughs> sure. And it's weird because even now having almost, it's almost been a year since I started really doing it. I've thought about doing meditation for years and I just never really was consistent till last year. But, um, you know, once I, when I've been doing it for a few days consistently, just stuff like just happens more easily. I'm just able to get through the day more easily. There's less stress. Decisions feel clearer. And yeah, it's really crazy. I'm still kind of blown away that it works as well as it does. Right. <laughs> it, it just doesn't feel like it should because I'm not doing anything, but it kind of feels like, I mean, I always find very similar results. When, when I meditate consistently, things are just easier, things are working better, um, but then I'll fall off, you know? And yeah. I, I don't want to have done it maybe for a couple of days, and then it turns into a week, and then maybe it turns into a couple of weeks. And um, yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of almost like flossing or something, mm -hmm. something that like I should really do more often, and whenever I do, I feel better. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. But it's, it's, it's hard to kind of commit to a commit meditation to. session every day for sure it's um yeah it, it's it's a <laughs> it's an interesting thing it's it's weird because it um not weird i guess it's interesting that it's becoming more popular nowadays and a lot of this like self-reflection stuff i think there's more conversations around you know mental health and you know meditation and, and things that are maybe seem a little more esoteric it's kind of probably more hippie-ish I mean, you, we had an interesting talk about this too, Pops. It was about um, when you first, psychology, right? When you first kind of studied yeah. it or took that class in college, right? What was your impression? Well, no, it wasn't college. First time I heard about psychology was in high school. Uh -huh. And uh, it was one of the kids on the team, the track team. He was a young kid. He wasn't very good, but it was, we had kids that would take track and field for units, right? Yeah. Um, he was a geeky kid and I saw maybe a psychology book or something like that and so so the word itself in in, in Russian mean when we when anybody talk about psychology 
it, it's actually pronounced psych. Uh, so if you call somebody psych, that means crazy person. Oh, interesting. Psych. And uh, psychology is uh, psychology. And so psych is somebody who's crazy. So Crazyology. Yeah, exactly. So that's how it sounds. That's how it, the word was interpreted in, in Russian and basically created um, to connotate something very negative. So I thought he was talking about crazy people. He said, no, that's not what it's about. So he kind of gave me a very basic explanation that, you know, it allows you to read and understand people and intention and so forth, like and meaning behind subconscious uh, uh, activities. Now, my English wasn't that good. And so, but nevertheless, I, uh, I thought I was fascinated with it. I took the class in high school. That was my first class. And um, it was fascinating because our psychology teacher was very outgoing, out of the box, kind of like doing things, questioning things. And I was fascinated from very regimented, you know, school teacher of, of you know, in Russia where you have to sit with hands above the bed, uh, desk, uh, and raise your hand straight up like that to like she was sitting on the table and asking questions like you know why is it okay to you know if i scratch here scratch here, but it's not okay if i scratch myself here or here hmm. <laughs> things like that i remember and i was like whoa should you be doing that in front of people <laughs> and she was very you know heavy woman sad woman so she's sitting on her desk and i was like oh um so just in <laughs> just those mere shocking and kind of Right, that's uh, a huge impression. Yeah, it made impression, and I go, okay, uh, yeah, why not? And so, I, I too, like remember my first psychology class, and similar thing. I was just fascinated that this was even a field of study, and that there had been so much into it at that point, and all the weird, you know, like uh, the Stanford, um, what is it, prison experiment? You know, where they're like, you're guards, you're prisoners, yeah. right? The dynamics of that and then you see it you know you see aspects of that in your everyday life right whether it's work or people you bump into or or anything else it's like there's almost these assumed roles that people will slot into for different different purposes yeah um Hmm. yeah well you know i i just recently realized that all those years that i thought i was you know great in psychology um or I was just scratching the surface because there's, you know, psychology, psychiatry, there's physiology, part of psychology. There's, we could have endless number of experiments that kind of leads neuroscience, to this, like yeah, that, neuroscience, yeah. yeah, realization that we are all mildly mad. Yeah. We're not <laughs> in control of our own emotions and our own feelings that we are preconditioned so early on, you know, perhaps as early as development stages inside our mothers. Right. Because what they did and how they did it, you what know, they what eat, they listen to. And this test stress level and, you know, you do experiments on rats and apparently a couple of generations later, if they were shock therapy still felt or sense on, uh, on, uh, Future generations. Future generations. So you go, oof. So there's some wiring going on far in the future. Well, it's also like, why are most mammals scared of snakes and things like that? You know, yeah. how far does that go back? How do they? Yeah. And yeah, Rebecca mentioned another thing. It says basically, we having a girl, obviously. Well, I have a little sister. But um, <laughs> she, basically, she's creating girls, and girls are all born with the all the eggs they ever gonna have which is so crazy right so she's basically creating eggs in her daughter sure so uh to pass on so and those eggs will turn into possibly you know other so they will create it now generation yeah so uh there had to be some kind of coding on how do birds know where to fly in the winter yeah uh, how do monkeys no stuff so there's stuff that I think genetically epigenetically get passed on hmm. um, but the, the reason it's important is you know how much are we in control right we, we, we don't. the nature nurture uh, 
argument. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, because I know I watched an interview way back where you said one of your favorite movies was The Matrix, and that's they talk a lot about free will and choice and control, um, you know. And well, it's it's interesting. I mean, my I guess my take on it has always been, not always, but lately has been self-control and sort of free will stems for, from kind of awareness so if you're aware of what decisions you can make what are your options if you're aware of how you're feeling or what your preferences are um, there's this you know you're never in total control but you're you can do that feedback loop and sort of evaluate okay I'm going through this set of patterns again let me choose a different path if you're not aware you can't make that choice in the first place so it's, I guess there's some element of chance of how you're made aware of things, but I also think that, you know, you could also say, argue that at all times you have that choice of reflection and choice of trying to analyze. Yeah, reactive, proactive. Uh, sure. Yeah, so, and absolutely, uh, if, if I'm not aware why am I acting in a certain way, that means I am in a, basically in a, redundant kind of self-repeating pattern that I don't even understand what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that movie Click, right? Yeah. Get into this kind of autopilot. Autopilot, mm-hmm. yep. And uh, so the first key, again, to possibly exerting some free will is self-understanding, hmm. right? So you, if you understand what you're doing, you understand anything if you understand the computer program then you could reprogram it redo it and that's the great thing that just recently a couple of months that i've started to discover that human brain has a lot of plasticity when you're young where new passages of form synapses and so forth but then uh by 25 we're pretty much set <laughs> yeah, yeah it's not impossible to increase the plasticity first of all there's a couple of things have to happen, but it's not impossible. And and the brain in itself is just fascinating organ because it's the only organ that could cause itself to change, hmm. uh, plastic, you know, change its functions and so forth. Which is pretty crazy if you How think of any machine like that yeah. or any. There's nothing yeah. like self alteration. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 very very difficult to kind of grasp. So what has to happen? Well, first of all. You can't keep doing the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you're not changing what Definition you're doing, of insanity. well, no. Beyond that, I'm saying yes, sure. If you keep doing the same thing, expecting different results, but if you keep doing the same thing, you you just reinforcing already established passages like mm-hmm. in your brain. Yeah. So you need to start doing something different, number one, and then you have to, uh, you know, you, once you said something about human awe experience, right? Like mm. That's the most, one of those most fascinating experiences. So if you get into that awe experience and then if you get a little bit of stress, like let's say if I want to start learning to shoot basketball, so it's new, ah, makes, gives me that idea. And if I go, no, and if I go and start shooting, the brain will eventually figure out, you know, the, sure, it's better if somebody shows you the right technique, but if I shoot, uh, thousand shots per day, 10,000, 100,000 a week or whatever, eventually it will figure it out. It will know exactly how to command your hand to shoot. Now, is it easy to shoot 10,000 shots? No. And that's why there's a big discrepancy in basketball players, even in NBA. It goes 60% or 96%. It's a big difference. You just need to take time. So you know some uh, branched into defensive players that are not very good offensively, others in offensive, and they keep honing that skill. Hmm. So you create stress, so you, you do something new, you create stress, and then you need to create reward mechanism. Hmm. And if you do that, your body says, yeah, and and reward cannot be result-based, right? If I shoot once and I say, if I miss another three times, I'm gone. No, so you have to prime dopamine to a process, sure. not to reward. And because then it becomes enjoyable, then you could right. do it. And, and it, you don't stop the process. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so those those tricks, uh, and we start learning and go, okay, so how can I apply it? And then there's infinite way to apply it to basically anything. And and then you have to decide. Paradox mm-hmm. of choice. Like you now, in my situation right now, uh, I have that 
you know, dilemma, kind of like you could do anything. Well, decide what you want to do, prioritize, and figure it out. But I love what you just said there about the process being the reward as opposed to the goal or the destination, which I think basically everyone that I've ever bumped into is always thinking about it the other way. Yeah. And the true greatness is that consistent process that you enjoy. And, yeah. you know, that that's those people that you can't, you couldn't pay them to stop doing whatever they're doing, you know, because they, they have made the process. Well, so which one would be like thing that you could kind of keep doing and doing and doing without getting bored? That's the real question, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like if, if I became, a, you know, 99% basketball shooter eventually, mm-hmm. I say, okay, I'm just bored now. It's like <laughs> getting there. So eventually you get there, right? And when yeah. you get there, you you reestablish your uh, uh, edonic level, yeah. and and you go okay, what's, what's next? next? Sure, that's, <laughs> that's the hardest part. <laughs> yeah. We were just talking about that today with the about the CEOs because Bezos just stepped down, right? And uh, it was uh, I think it was last year or maybe it was two years ago when uh, Google founders stepped down. I mean Bill Gates stepped down, right? Um, it's it's kind of like I think, and especially now everything going on with all the all the tech, big tech regulations and antitrust stuff. It's, it's, um, you know, it's interesting that at, you know, at a certain point, I bet they're, you know, in similar situations, like, what do I want to do with my time? Really? You know, do I really want to be, yeah. you know, going to meetings all the time and, you know, dealing with, you know, putting out fires constantly, or do I want to just kind of focus on something else, focus on something that's more meaningful? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I guess, uh, it's, easy to see how Gates and Bezos eventually, and that takes effort and it takes a certain degree of stamina to re- or self-knowledge to realize, hey, uh, you know, I've just gone too far or too long under severe stress, so this is not what I want. You know? um, or they've so, probably achieved, right? They've reached, like, the process has become old. Yeah. Well, you know, at the end of the day, you uh, either uh, either self-consume or, or or get consumed by others in, in business, right? So uh, self-destruct or whatever. So, and it's also easy for me to understand that, um, yeah, like you said, if they reach the goal, I don't know if they had the goal, some of them just stumble in and became great without many expectations. Like Bezos, for example, he just wanted to have a small, profitable little bookstore, right? <laughs> Ended up to be huge, enormous, very unprofitable, yet still unprofitable while generating a lot of revenue business. Uh, but I, I, at the end of the day, I think all, the, all philosophies, because that's what we're doing right now, kind of philosophizing about life, uh, whether it's psychology based or whatever is basically to me study about death <laughs> how to die uh, or, or, or or in some degree some might want to know how not to die sure. yeah. mm-hmm. depending which way you want to go you could accept death and then two sides of the same coin yeah uh, if you don't accept death then you're just going to continue putting your name on every building like Trump does and you want to put monuments to yourself while still alive and kind of everything you do becomes uh, uh, well, a form of immortalizing yourself or your efforts, so to speak. Um, and I think that's the tragedy of uh, today's world. Um, Denial of Death. You know, it's a great book. Um, um, and... Uh, in basically uh, the civilization and not just our civilization all civilization it doesn't matter the level of development of their civilization um, all of them deny death and deny almost existence of definite death whether they inventing you know Christianity invents heaven, or whether it's Muslim inventing heaven, or whether it's some sub-Saharan tribe that 
interprets uh, what happens after it, this life. It can't life. possibly end. That, yeah, that. it can't end, right? So, hmm. and and, and reincarnation, whatever. Yeah, yeah reincarnation and Buddhism, whatever. So S- something has to. Yeah. And, and that is very sad thing because I think by its nature it devalues life. It basically says, "Don't worry about this life; it's worthless," uh, because it's finite, uh, fi- finite. Uh, you know, there's going to be end. But there's another one that is infinite, and it's so much better. So we get to the point like everybody wants to go heaven, nobody wants to die, uh, and but everybody have different religion, and so of course, and everyone, all religions don't believe the other religions, so. And and then when you get into conflict, so they all cannot be right. Right. They all cannot be wrong. So uh, in their minds, right. So one of them have to be right, and more right than the other. And how do you prove that? You go kill the other guy and say, "My God is greater than yours." <laughs> Basically, ba- backing up a little and asking another big question. And yeah. If you don't yeah. have an answer, totally fine. I don't. No, I have answers really to everything. <laughs> no, no. So what? Uh, what happens when you die? What do you think happens? What do you think happens to your consciousness? I, I think, yeah, I learned something from a great man, Sergei, once said, <laughs> I think he called it Einstein's, they asked him that, he said, no, no, don't care, makes no difference to me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, isn't that kind of not cop out? Uh, looking at it? You know? Well, it's all speculative, right? Uh, what do you think? Okay, just by the nature of question, like, I think, well, I, I I don't know. I there's a couple uh, couple ways to even understand life. Like you know, there's there's not clear the definition of life. There's not it's not clear definition of consciousness. Like the trees are alive too, right? Right, but we all can identify when someone has died and you bury or cremate them or something, you know, and well, and that person you can't talk to again. And, yeah, so I took Sergey once. We have Lawrence Hall of Science in Berkeley, and I took him once there when he was little. There was some exhibition. I think it was dinosaurs, and I hang around this book section, which on the middle had this big pot, was full of books, enormous, like maybe ten feet across, just books, 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 thrown up there. And I looked at one, and this was a kind of kids' day, and there was one, Sex and Existence of Death, and I'm going, well, that's not appropriate. <laughs> so of course, this would be the book that I pick up, it was written by William Clark, I think. And he is a neurologist from UCLA. And uh, I'm just going to summarize it very quickly. And, you know, death of the organism now is perceived a little bit different uh, than it was maybe some time ago. Um, and bottom line is, the, he describes the process of dying body. But more importantly, uh, what my takeaway from the book was, he says, wait a second, so... We could basically, we know how to clone things, right? We could clone a sheep, we could clone, we clone a bunch of animals, we could clone humans. So the definition now of the death is not when you physically die or when you brain dead. The definition now has to be that you're dead when every cell in your body is dead because technically speaking, you could take that last cell, strip the DNA, place it in an egg, boom, Peter is born again. Well, now children as well right half of you goes on exactly so but it wouldn't be you it would be your twin who have totally different experiences but technically all the same dna is basically what defines life kind of what dna you pass on right. but I, same thing happens with children right you're right. right when you go that one cell that you passed on to your wife but it's and her egg, it's still you know our children are going to be our children. They're going to be a, a combination of it. It's not going to be half me, half my wife, or you know, vice, you know, for you as well. Yeah. And so what dies really is consciousness. But the, right, but the person, right? Like talking well, to you, you know, like it's, we're just accum- we're illusion, we're accumulation of thoughts, experiences, and so forth. So even if you had identical twin, we're, we're just we're just genes that yeah. got set on a, a journey. Yeah, and, and there was some, a lot of luck involved and you picked up some stuff and so now we created this like self-awareness that's going to disappear. It's going to be painless. Like just like, sure. you know, you're 30 years old, right? 30 yeah, 30. So 31 years ago, you didn't exist and it wasn't painful. Not going to exist 
it's one point probably in 100 years it won't the point even but even if you let's let's say if i had a car accident and severe contusion i could come out of the coma but have no idea who i am and forget everything I ever knew, and I had to read on this. Would I still be me? People say, "Yeah, that you know, that's Dimitri." But if I don't know who I am, uh, what is life? So it's basically, it, it, you know, somebody's hit the reset button in your head. Mm. Boom! It's like Westworld. So it's it's yeah. the story you tell yourself. It's like a a journey that you in your memories are the recording and. They just go and then it ends. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's like a child is, I guess, at some point becomes self-aware because I, I think maybe, I don't know what age it is. I, I've heard multiple uh, uh, ideas about that, but there is a point where child becomes self-aware and that point coincides when the child understands death. Like when he sees, say, mm-hmm. father takes the shoe and kills the rat. Or something and goes oh he's dead he's not moving or, or bird dying or fish dying and then there's a realization and and that's pretty traumatic i remember being traumatic for me i was like obsessed with this idea like i couldn't understand like of emptiness internal forever emptiness because and it's true because child can understand complexity of this thought but if i was locked into wooden box for eternity that would be extremely torturous and very very difficult but but that requires consciousness hmm. if you're not yeah i remember my matter. my my first experience i remember realizing planetarium yep yeah, yeah we're i talking remember about that yeah i was like crying on the ride home and you guys didn't know what was going on and i was just like i just somehow it was like it zoomed out and you could see all the planets and like Everything in space and it was small and insignificant. I was like, whoa! <laughs> like <laughs> like I said, that emptiness. That happened to me too. I was watching really? a movie and it was a little kid, and he was talking about how he just found out the universe is infinitely expanding, mm-hmm. so everything will get cold eventually and die. Yeah. And then he was really depressed. And, and then I don't know depressed. if it was, well, yeah, because it was a little kid. I think I was roughly the same age when I watched it. I think it was a, a thing of a movie. But it, yeah, and it was like, it stuck with me ever since. I don't really worry about it now <laughs> like I used to. Um, denying? Denying that? No, I don't. I accept it. Like, I used to be scared of it. Like, oh no, like, that's so terrible. But now I'm like, it's, it's the process. It's, well, it's, I'm it's, saying deny in a sense, uh, not you deny it exists. You accept it exists, but you just deny it presence in your everyday life. Kind of like, because think about it all the time, every second, just the madness. No, but it's, even if I'm totally fine with that happening, I just, uh, it, it's part of the process, right? You, you, like you're saying where before you existed, you didn't worry about it. You're going to have a a life and then after it, you're not going to worry about it. Like, yeah, so it could be the same for a star. I want to kind of come back to this book by Ernest Becker, uh, Denial of Death. Uh, it's like, yes, we, we, it, it's accepted to one point, but not now, not today, not to me, you know, kind of situation where it's, uh, yeah, why worry about it, right? Um, because I, I think we go on, I go on quite often, during the day worry about everything else and preoccupied with everything else but i'm not really thinking about death why i'm thinking about new car i'm thinking about new house i'm thinking about what tile i'm going to put in the kitchen how much money is in the bank the future the this the kids the grandkids possibly Uh, that keeps me occupied that's my basically um displacement activity or coping mechanism i don't want to think about it or you go to church and you say you know so it, it's it's denial maybe it's not exact word it's not that you deny that death exists it's like refusal to bring death to forefront every day and i'm not saying we should do that but i'm just saying eventually it requires some acknowledgement most of the life to me is now is basically coping mechanism or displacement activity. Most of the stuff that we do is has little significance. 
Uh, and if you look at humanity as producer or whatever, we don't know how to do anything ourselves. Like nobody, there's not a single person who could make telephone or even pencil by himself. So we need this communal kind of knowledge and most of the stuff that we get pushed us forward, you know, like Elon Musk, people like him, these giants, uh, they, they are like 001% of population. And even that is, I heard today, another podcast very briefly they were praising Musk and his abilities and so forth and one thing came across he says well you know there's two possible futures for say humanity one we're stuck on our earth forever and ever and ever and ever until something bad happens to it or we're gonna live on all the planets well one of them you know it's like almost matrix and one of them has a future and the other one does not yeah. and, <laughs> and it's like same thing it's like staying on earth doesn't have a future the other one's more excited. So, and I'm going, okay, so go deeper. It's all fear based. Yeah. We stay here, we all die. Everything that ever existed on this earth, every animal, every plant, everything will be destroyed eventually. Even if we have survival yeah. destroying the ourselves. Sun will go out. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and again, and consciousness doesn't want to accept that. We, want, we don't want to accept it. We don't want to everything that I ever did here and produce here will disappear, sad. So let's figure out a way. To rationalize to, it. Yeah. So we, you know, and, and we strap ourselves with explosive on our back and go to moon, basically. And and actually figure out and land there. And only 100 years ago, we were in the darkness. We were sitting, there was no electricity more than 120 years ago. So we got this exponential growth. Now we got AI. Now we get all kind of possibilities of existing possibly in different forms and shapes and, and upload and download ourselves consciousness it all becomes very 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 surreal and the rate of change is, is so great that you know I realized that the, that none of it is a, has an end game right it's it's hard to predict 10 years in the future imagine hundred imagine yeah. thousand years in the future if we make it so and the only thing, so what can I do now? It's like, I want to understand what makes me tick, right? And then possibly I could make better choices. And what does that mean? That's all down to optimization, right? Uh, well, I think, I think that's a pretty good note to end on. It's a nice optimistic note to leave on. I don't know, is there anything else? Or no, this is great. I'm glad we, we all got to sit down together. This is a good good tenth episode. We're already thinking of the, the title for it, just based on what we talked about. We'll definitely have to do another one. I think uh, wanted to explore, you know, that some of that futurism stuff that we always talk about and spirituality, philosophy. But uh, this is great. Thanks for coming good. on. Thanks yeah. so much for sharing. Congrats yeah. again. Congrats. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> all right. Thanks. <laughs>